Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant podcast. As you might have guessed, I'm here in uh, the world headquarters of National Review um, in New York City. I had to be here for a Fox thingamabob and uh, realized I had to do a podcast today or I wouldn't get one done this week because of – well, because of court hearings and whatnot. And so I came into the offices today and uh, – um, I had forgotten that it's intern season, so the place is just crawling with them. They're into everything. They got and I took some yogurt out of the fridge, and it was like had like seven kids from Yale in it. Um, and uh, and so I just recorded an episode of one of NR's best niche podcasts called The Editors, and um, I managed to finagle uh, someone from that podcast to be on this podcast. Now here's the thing: I was. And so, that, oh, by the way, that means, ladies and gentlemen, there will be no Jack Butler this week. Um, he'll just, you know, have to stay handcuffed to the radiator. Um, but uh, so I had this opening here in New York City to do a podcast and I, I got in touch with some people. I won't name who, who let me down, who disappointed me. But one of the people I reached out to was Comfortably Smug on Twitter. For those of you who don't know, Comfortably Smug is a secret Twitter – oh, it's a – it's an anonymous Twitter account from a very funny guy who's very good at trolling and whatnot. And you're never quite clear how serious he is about whether or not he wants Tommy Lauren to be president or whatnot. But one of the things that he is passionate about is how much he hates Marco Rubio. And so I was listening to an editor's podcast a few weeks ago and this guy, Luke Thompson, who clearly is like up to speed on the politics stuff the way Smug is, seems to share some of his sense of humor – Starts going on about, you know, from hell's heart, I stab at thee about how much he hates Marco Rubio and how much he has no qualifications to be a carbon-based life form. And I was like, aha, I figured it out. But I asked Smug if he could be on. He said he couldn't because he was in California. And then I asked Thompson if he could be on and he said yes. So this is the best piece of evidence yet that they're not the same person. So by way of that, Luke, welcome aboard to the Remnant Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Um, so I gather you're not the f- – I'm not the first person to raise this possibility. Uh, let, me, let me just say up front I am not comfortably smug. Um, he, well, you're comfortable and you're smug. I am both of those things. Yeah. But I am, not, I am not the master of that Twitter account. Um, I would never live in the godforsaken borough of this fine city he chooses to reside in. But we are friends and uh, we are both, uh, shall we say, like, likewise enlightened when it comes to the junior senator from the state of Florida. I see. Oh, I'm not going to get into the weeds. I have a nice relationship with, with Senator Rubio. I, I tend to think he gets a bad rap. Maybe we can get back to that later. But we should tell people you, you co-host with Jay Cost, a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to be uh, – before I decided to take up the more stable and socially respectable life of a Republican political consultant, I was an academic and uh, taught um, – political theory and American political development uh, at Yale where I got my PhD. And so Jay and I, after initially yelling at each other on Twitter during the 2016 primary, realized we had some uh, shared interests about this, about the history and development of 
late 18th century American ideas and, and history. And so we about a year ago launched a podcast called Constitutionally Speaking, um, which is essentially designed to do everything humanly possible to drive listeners away. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in spite of that, um, in spite of the god-awful production values, um, at, at least on my part, not Jay's, lackadaisical preparation, um, sometimes dubious sobriety and uh, intermittent release schedule and unpredictable lengths, we actually have, have gotten a decent fan base. Um, uh-huh. there, there are enough, it turns out there are enough American history nerds out there that like listening uh, to Jay and I argue and bicker with each other about uh, Hamilton and Madison and all things Constitution, um, that yeah, we, we, we're still doing it. Um, we've gotten all the way through ratification and we're right now uh, digging into sort of the feuds over the first and second budget that led to Hamilton and Madison um, uh, f- turning against one another. And that's, of course, a central theme in Jay's new book. Right. Um, the Shocking that Jay would want to focus on Yeah, I know, that. right. So I'm a huge fan of Jay Cost. I was a major lobbyist internally at AEI to help him get his associate or, or, or whatever they call it, um, fellowship at AI. And we should alert readers, I mean, listeners, since you brought up the issue of sobriety. This is the actually – I know it doesn't seem like it, but this is actually the first remnant podcast where we're drinking while recording even though it's only about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I, I like to think that I'm a positive influence. Yeah. Well, you know, as I always like to say, you can't say you've been drinking all day unless you start in the morning. But so anyway – what if you had to, as tendentiously as you want, which sure. will get him to uh, demand a right of reply? What would you say your three biggest disagreements are with with Jay about American history? Um, so, uh, boy, I, I think probably we have. So, in general, he's much more of a Madisonian, and I'm much more of a Hamiltonian. Okay. Um, in in the sense that I'm I'm probably also I mean it, it's it feels like a really um, sort of almost fraternal disagreement at this point because Jay and I share so many premises about these things and so many other people f- disagree with us. But I'm probably a little more economically driven in my analysis than he mm-hmm. is. And then, you know, he has a much more comprehensive knowledge of the history than I do. And I sort of came – I think he comes to the political theory through the history and has just a deeper and richer and frankly, he's worked a lot harder at it and, and attained a lot more of it, um, knowledge of the of – the, Framing generation, and I come to it through political theory. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much a disagreement, but maybe a bias towards our points of origin, which is I I will often read the kind of Anglo Republican tradition of political thought into the founding, colored heavily with economics, and he and he will generally have, and he's often right as a result in our arguments. He'll have some really hard, tangible facts to put against that. Say. I know, right? It's it's no fun when they do that, but um. You know, it's it's been a really rewarding way for me to keep my brain engaged because it's uh, it's a different part of the mind than one uses when identifying you know micro targeted universes to push tendentious messaging. Yeah. So uh, let me. Why did you decide to become? I mean, why did you decide to leave um, one coprophagic phylum and join another? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Um, well, so I uh, I I went to graduate school directly after undergrad. Um, so I, I graduated from the University of Kansas in 2007, and then turned 23 and moved to New Haven. And uh, this little thing called the global financial crisis happened shortly after I started grad school. And so even though I showed up and immediately had doubts about whether or not I wanted to be an academic, um, the people that I knew at my undergraduate institution who were academics were these happy, generally well-adjusted people who liked each other. And that was true of plenty of my instructors at Yale. But I recognized a rat race for what it was, which is exactly what kind of academia had become and decided I 
I didn't want to be an academic. But with the economy in total disarray, uh, making no money to read books, drink beer, and chase girls seemed like a pretty decent way to spend one's 20s. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I stuck with it. And one of the side effects of that was I was the only political theorist probably the whole time I was there uh, to take the entire statistics sequence. Um, I came to grad school with a pretty decent mathematical and statistical background, had taken a few courses in undergraduate and just generally um, had always been a good math student. And so I teched up, as, as we say in grad school, while I was there and then recognized, recognizing I think on some level that no one would ever hire me for my thoughts on Machiavelli but they might hire me to, to run regressions. Well, Crystal might hire you. But yeah, you might, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, well, certainly not now. Uh, again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I have a little experience with the political consulting world either mm -hmm. through friends or through weird jobs I had early in my sort of life. How much of it is like hardcore quanti mathy now? Oh, to boy. use technical terms. No, boy. It's, it's changing a lot. So – you know, I remember I worked for Mike Murphy at Right to Rise in 2016 and I remember at the beginning of that, Murphy and I were having a discussion about the trajectory of um, political consulting towards sort of automation and the automating of decisions. And um, we had both sort of agreed that things were tending towards the automation of decisions but they weren't there yet and uh, we were both wrong. What's actually happened is automation has accelerated much faster than I thought but it's accelerated precisely in those regimes that remove the kind of technical – um, well, say, say what you mean. Side. I think I know what you mean by automated decisions, but sure. explain so, that for people who don't. Yeah. So I mean the biggest challenge that you have on a campaign is you have limited resources, limited time and a vast amount of uncertainty. And so what you want to do is simultaneously narrow your uncertainty and thus optimize your spending, right? Make sure that you're concentrating your dollars where they're going to do the most good and how they're going to do the most good. And you're doing that in really compressed timelines and so – you know, to get more knowledge, you have to spend money that you're not then correspondingly spending on advertising or on messaging. And balancing those things can be eased by anything technological that, say, helps you optimize your spending across different outlets or helps you target individual voters, like prioritize different voters. So micro-targeting, which you hear a lot about, is really just a means of rank ordering all the voters along certain axes and then deciding where to put your budget and post cut points in many cases. Or it can be used to pick one message set over another to drive a, a creative message. And in, in, initially, the challenges around micro-targeting were mostly challenges of figuring out how to integrate and crunch numbers into usable information around audience creation, right? Okay, what, where is the marginal voter where I put the cut here and this person is in and this person is out in terms of who gets a piece of mail, mm -hmm. right? And that seemed to be the trajectory that it was going to continue to take, which would mean that increasingly the kind of strategically informed or gut-based decisions that um, general consultants, campaign managers, the people who make the strategic decisions on campaigns uh, were making would be not so much driven by instinct or gut but driven by tables and spreadsheets that right, would show right, up right. in front of you and it would just be plain as day, you know, hit audience A, not audience B. And a lot of that did happen um, in terms of the sort of optimization of process. You know, friends of mine who ran the digital department at the RNC, um, Gary Kobe and Garrett Lansing, uh, built what amounted to essentially a high-frequency trading system to optimize Facebook ad buys based on micro-buys. They would see which ones were performing best and in real time push mm -hmm. more money into the ones that were, were, uh, were performing best. And so you know, that sort of process stuff did a lot to automate decision-making. But what's gone even beyond that is we now have 
you know, what I used to be, which was a data analyst by and large, we have automated processes for analytical decision making. And what that's really done is it's actually opened up the landscape more and more to people who are creative, people who have good instincts. So the, the kind of automation of campaigns that, that I had thought was going to take place, which was going to limit the kind of uh, creative decision making and all that and mm-hmm. hand over the sort of keys to the kingdom to the nerds, has actually gone the opposite direction, which it's automated so much that the nerds have become redundant. And, you know, trying to stay ahead of that curve, I mean, I probably haven't written, I've written less code in the last 18 months than I'd written in any chunk of 18 months before that in the decade hmm. uh, previous. Okay. I've I've written no code since 1987. Oh, what what were you writing? And I'm curious. Uh, well, I mean, I think it was some something on a maybe a TSR, TRS 80. Okay, uh, right. it was like basic. I mean, I I I, I don't I don't like it's all witchcraft as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, um, and for listeners, I apologize. I don't know if it actually is getting picked up on these very expensive mics that we have here, but there is. All sorts of really annoying sounds coming from above us or to the side of us. It sounds like construction or maybe some sort of like marathon interrogation session where a guy's got a drill asking, is it safe? But anyway, where there's a low rumbling sound that comes through. I apologize for it. I know that if, if, if Charlie Cook were actually physically here, he would take a flamethrower to those guys because he's an audio nerd. All right. So I don't want to ask any more about that stuff. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, if you want to talk about Cambridge Analytica, we can do that. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, but I mean, so I guess part of the part of my question would be, so let's marry the two things, right? On the one hand, you're, you know, kind of deeply invested in some fundamental long-term questions about the Constitution and the, the nature of the Republic and all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, you are part of the process that seems to a lot of people to be making a lot of that stuff seem antiquated and obsolete, hmm. Right. How much – you know, one of the arguments I normally hate is actually I, I'm grateful to you. I think you were the last guest on the editor's podcast to actually plug something I wrote about the problem with the self-pardoning thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I thought that was a great piece. It was a really uh, honest piece and I thought it was uh, – it, it really crystallized things. Yeah. Well, thank you. But I mean for people who don't know, my base, I think I talked about this with Ilya Shapiro. Um, normally when I hear someone say, well, the founding fathers never imagined – any sentence that begins that way, I want to flip the safety on my rifle, right? Because you know, <laughs> the, I know what's coming next. But in the in the case of the self pardon, you, you mean prime the flintlock, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, and so, in, but in this case, you know, the founding fathers never inva- literally never imagined a DOJ or an FBI like we have it, right? Blah blah blah. Similarly, the whole idea of this sort of Jeffersonian yeoman citizenry and all that kind of stuff did not anticipate. Some would argue. Micro-targeting where you match up the fact that somebody is buying um, a certain brand of Frosted Flakes um, on a Wednesday and that means they are more likely to be pro-choice or whatever the hell you <laughs> warlocks do. But you you get my point, right? Yeah, I, I do. I mean I, I'd say a couple of things. So I think there are two objections that are at work in your piece, one of which is the micro-targeting objection that you just said. And I'll get to that second if you don't mind. The sure. other of which is um, you know, the, the founding fathers never uh, comprehending – you know, the scope and scale of government and the extent to which the president was powerful within that. I, I would push back on that the the never comprehended the possibility of, of chief executive treachery because I, I basically four words, Benedict Arnold, Aaron Burr, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the founding generation was a revolutionary generation. They had within it 
deeply complicated and ultimately fundamentally corrupt and compromised characters who they had been literally brothers in arms with. Um, they had you know, taken bullets for each other quite literally and, um, and those people then sold them out, turned around and sold them out. And so they were perfectly capable of recognizing the, po the possibility of treachery, perfidy, venality, um, criminality in the chief executive office. And so I think that it's – I actually think the impeachment sort of and pardoning powers exist precisely because of that, right? They – coming out of the English tradition where uh, you know, political defeat at high stakes had essentially been criminalized um, in the kind of early Reformation period after the schism – well, before the schism where you get more and then of course Cromwell meets the same fate. You attainder had been used as a means to punish one's political enemies and I think that the the decision to essentially blank that, which is what's at the heart of the um, pardon power dispute, was a good one and was born out of a kind of political sagacity that most American politicians don't even comprehend today. Like we don't, we don't think of it as a realistic possibility that a leading American politician could be an out-and-out -out traitor. They did. That was not only was that possible; it was something they knew happened. Right. Right. Sure. Um, in terms of the uh, in terms of the microtargeting scope and scale of government, I'll I'll go back to something um, when James Monroe and James Madison ran against each other for a seat in the first Congress. You know, they came at they came at things from a very different way. Um, Patrick Henry actually had the district gerrymandered to make it hard for Madison to beat Monroe, and Monroe was essentially dragooned into running uh, on Henry's behalf. But they wound up getting along and going around um, the country or the the district, essentially stumping together. And there's one particular reminiscence of Madison's where they go to what he described as a quote, a nest of Dutchmen. Um, <laughs> and they, they both argued constitutional principles in front of the Dutchmen and then they went away and I think Madison won the day and the Dutchmen voted for, for Madison. And a nest of Dutchmen sounds like a very expensive thing you order at a very specialized brothel. Yeah, very but, specialized brothel or some sort of weird English dessert. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you or know. both. Could be, yes, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. But the uh, – you know, that is in effect a kind of microtargeting. I think the, the thing that people misunderstand is that in post-war America with the breakdown of sort of intergenerational ethnic communities through suburbanization and other uh, shifts in geography, the latent heterogeneity within the population, the ways in which we're different from one another didn't go away. It just became a lot harder to see. Right, so we knew every we knew that this was a nest of Dutchmen because uh, they were all Reformed Church members, and their last names were all like my grandmother's Van Meter. Right? right, right. Now that nest of Dutchmen is scattered around Central Virginia. Some live in the Virginia exurbs. Some have moved out west to the farmland. A few are in the northern Virginia suburbs, working for the Pentagon. And most of the time, their party ID, education, race, and income will do enough to determine who they're going to vote for. But in primaries and things like that, um, knowing who descends from the nest of Dutchmen and thus has a series of, shall we say, more fatalistic, Calvinistic ideas um, about the world versus who descends from a group of, say, German Catholics uh, living in the same distributed areas can tell you a lot about who's going to win in um, a primary. The problem is, is that uh, there is no column on the voter file for all the vaunted rows of data that we have. One right. is not nest of Dutchman, yes, no, German Catholic, yes, no. And so you use consumer data. Uh, what was your description? It was uh, uh, someone who eats a certain brand of buys a certain brand of cereal on yeah, a Wednesday. Yeah, buy, right? buys a, you know you buy you buy uh, I don't know cocoa crisps on on a uh -huh. Wednesday. Um, you're not actually. It's not that 
being a you know it's not that you fill out your voter registration card hit R and suddenly you have a craving for for this particular brand of cereal sure. nor does buying that brand of cereal make you want to be more republican but rather they're the, correlated somehow ex, they're correlated mostly because of unobserved latent schisms in the population that are almost all byproducts of historical legacies right mm -hmm. i mean one of the most powerful forces in american political life is religious denomination not necessarily even among people who are non-believers Right? The religious denomination of their grandparents will tell you a lot about their political views. But guess what? We don't have that data. That data doesn't exist and it surprises people that, that that doesn't exist. But habits of behavior express themselves for a very long time in ways that we're not even conscious about. And some of these occasionally will show up in consumer choice and that's really what the consumer data – You know, famously, I think it was in 2013, there was the – in the Senate special election, there was a – to replace John Kerry, uh, you know, I think Catholics were buying Heineken – or sorry, not Catholics. Democrats were buying Heineken and, and Republicans were buying Sam Adams. And what was really going on there was just that um, you know, the different groups of people that made up the Republican and Democratic coalitions or what would have been the more conservative versus more uh, you know, liberal coalitions had different consumer preferences based on their cultural priors. And because the party labels were not particularly effective in that context, those cultural priors expressed through consumer choice were helpful in disaggregating the population. Now, that doesn't mean it generalizes to any other election. It may not even hold true in Massachusetts today. But at that moment, those latent splits in the population were going on. I mean, I can give you more examples, mm -hmm. right? So my home state, the state of Kansas, has the death penalty. It's legal. We haven't used it since I believe 1964 or 65. I think we hanged a couple guys after uh, uh, Perry Smith and Dick Hickok who killed the clutters that became in cold blood. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was it. Haven't used it in 50 years. Oklahoma executes more people per capita than any state in the union. And um, how do you explain two states that demographically look so much alike, are right next to one another and have such fundamentally different views on the death penalty because it shows up in public opinion polling. And a lot of it has to do when people settle right, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. who settles. So Oklahoma had a lot of Scots-Irish settlement. It happened later, et cetera. You know, it was Indian territory for a very long time. Law and order was sort of absent for a very long time. Kansas settled. In, as part of the Western Expansion Project in the Civil War, lots of Swedes, lots of German Catholics, lots of New England expats. So they're, they're totally different seed populations. Right. People move back and forth but they culturally assimilate into the kind of seedbed population. And you see this in countries like say Ukraine where if you go to eastern Ukraine, people on opposite sides of the old imperial boundaries which can be as narrow as a little river right. will have different architecture, yep. different patterns of trash collection different consumer tastes. And so part of what we do as political micro-targeters is try to anticipate or try to find these latent cleavages in the population given the data that we have, mm -hmm. much of which is consumer data and almost all of which is useless almost all the time, but occasionally they hit those sort of splits and surface them. Like Springfield versus Shelbyville. I mean, they're very right. related to original pioneers and who got to marry whose cousin and whatnot. But Bingo. You know, Bingo. we don't need to get into all yeah, of that. Yeah, well, <laughs> webbed feet. Um, so... All that said, which I actually do find pretty interesting, isn't there something to be said for the fact that – Is it eroding democracy? Well, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's eroding democracy. My point is it's not necessarily – I'm not trying to make a qualitative better or worse thing, although one never goes wrong by arguing things are getting worse. Um, but it's more of a – just that apples and oranges distinction, right? So when you're going to speak to a nested Dutchman, mm. the politician says, dear Dutchman, we all share this great tradition even though we may have slightly different faiths but we all agree that we should put mayonnaise on french fries or whatever the hell it is, right? And 
when you're micro-targeting people who are the descendants of these Dutchmen, you're making no appeals to common ideals, no appeals to that heritage in oh, the to, way – To the contrary. We are making like really – one of the great things that has come out of research in my field is that pandering doesn't work particularly well. You know, If I go to a, a Latino population and basically say, you know, mi gente uh, para nosotros, right. you know, vote for this person. Those appeals work really, really poorly. I can say the message in Vietnamese or in um, in Spanish or a different language, but what works is the the message, the the really fundamental message of you know um, that that I would use in in a lot of different cases. And and one of the things that has been sort of restorative, I, I my an, an aunt of mine asked me why I do what I do mm-hmm. um, because I complain about it all the time, and there's plenty of skullduggery, but. Um, I sort of jokingly told her that I get to see the country with with its clothes off and there's a lot of truth to that. And for all the warts and sagging bits and whatnot, like you actually come to appreciate the beauty of the American people a lot more when you see them in their particularities and in their provincial bigotries. But it's true. I have yet to find a pandering sectarian or sort of tribalist message that works nearly as well as a common appeal to shared goals. So it's interesting. One of my great – bugaboos, obsessions, peeves, whatever you want to call it, is how just ruined the phrase American exceptionalism is. Oh, yeah. Right? So uh, I was a big fan. I actually knew Seymour Martin Lipset a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he's he's not the guy who created the term American exceptionalism, but he was probably the foremost sure. scholar of it uh, in our lifetimes. A- accidentally weaponized the term, arguably. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And um, But the concept of American exceptionalism, you know, goes back to Werner Sombart and why is there no socialism in America and and Bryce and it goes back to a lot of those guys, right? And the the classic example of uh, and so the argument about American exceptionalism used to be that it was really not a value judgment, right? That right. we are, um, or if it was a value judgment, it was usually given the people who are pitching it um, a negative one, slightly because, negative because we right. didn't have socialism, right? right. Net yeah. negative, right? Is like why Americans have to be why do Americans have to be so different? Yeah, right. And because American exceptionalism meant we had no socialism. It meant we were more violent, more individualistic. It was contrary to the notions of social solidarity that the European types and the Europeanophiles liked. And, um, and of course, since then, we've gotten better at measuring social solidarity. And it turns out that America, for as horribly isolated as American life can be in the 21st century, we actually still have pretty robust social solidarity compared to our European friends. Compared to our European – but that's a very low bar, isn't that's it? That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's and, like being the tallest building in Wichita, Kansas. Yeah, so, but, yeah. the, the best gas station sushi in Alabama. Right. And um, – uh, I've, I've eaten gas station sushi in a lot of American states. I'm, I'm right. <laughs> um, Best Oktoberfest in Orlando. There you go. Um, <laughs> so uh, – and I think I've brought up this up on here before, but you know, Marty always used to love to do this spiel about how the greatest social science experiment in the last 500 years wasn't, you know, our types like to do North Korea versus South Korea or West Germany versus East Germany. He would always say it was Canada versus the United States because you had basically the same generic genetic population, right, of white, mostly English descendant. You know, I know you're putting on your micro-targeting hat, <laughs> but. Um, and settled close to around the same time, right? But the key difference, as Marty would put it, was that if in in 1789, if you want, if you were all in for revolution, you either moved to the 13 colonies or you stayed there. If you were all against it, if you were a royalist or a loyalist, you either moved to Canada or you stayed there. Or you got kicked out. Or you got kicked out, right? Yeah. So there's this great filtering effect. Mm-hmm. And he says 200 years later – Jimmy Carter and, and whoever the – Would have been Trudeau, wouldn't it? Would have been the other Trudeau. 
Yeah, yeah, the yeah. elder Trudeau, the yeah. late Trudeau. Um, because the current Trudeau was yeah, the, the literate Trudeau. Yeah, there say. you go. Yeah, the um, the non-pajama boy Trudeau. Right. Uh, they both, you know, both governments told their people, "You're gonna." Um, switch the metric system, and the Canadians were like, "Okay," you know? <laughs> and, and the Americans were just like, "Pound sand." Yeah, what yeah. are you talking about? You know, that's this, this makes no sense. You know, and so now today, Canada's all kilometers, and you know, and you know, it's like, uh, well, you'll still see mile markers in the Maritimes. Okay, it, yeah, that's right. It, it does. It yeah. shows through. And I love those kinds of enduring mm-hmm. sort of differences, and it kind of speaks well to America. At the same time. Let's get back to this micro-targeting thing for a second. The very first op-ed I ever wrote, which ran in the Wall Street Journal on the day after election, 1992, was uh, on why we should expand Congress to 7,000, hmm. 8,000 people. Hmm. The one time – I believe this is correct. The one time George Washington spoke up during the Constitutional Convention was to argue that congressional seats of 40,000 voters were – districts were way too big hmm. and that he argued for lowering it to 30,000, right? Admittedly, technology made it a little easier to work the district and all that kind of stuff. But with micro-targeting and all this, it seems to me that f- what, is the, what is the standard district now? 460,000, 500,000? Yeah, thereabouts. That's bigger than all but one of the original 13 colony states, right? Mm-hmm. And so – and the only reason we have – we're stuck at 435 is basically because the friggin' fire marshal said you can't put anybody else in the room, right? What is it, What would be your argument against – you know, it, against shrinking districts and expanding Congress, it would make your job a little easier, right? But also make, get congressmen or politicians make it easier for them to know their actual constituents and their districts a bit better. I mean, in a word, Italy, I think, is the argument against it. Italy has you know huge numbers of representatives um, for a relatively small population, and um, but Italy's full of Italians. But there is that too. But you know, there are parts of the United States that are as well. Um, Our Italians are better. Yeah, that mostly true. Um, <laughs> The uh, – you know, I, I think that a lot of this is is building on – I guess that I would put it this way. I'm being a good conservative. I sort of see underlying culture as the Procrustean bed of political possibility mm-hmm. and um, early Republican American was an extremely diverse place in many respects uh, in ways that I think are almost impossible for us to comprehend uh, today. I mean mutual incomprehensibility of, of dialect. You know, extremely high rates of recent immigration, things like that, and uh, it's anachronistically easy to look back and say, "Well, most of those were Western Europeans," but actually, that omits large numbers of Native uh, Native American sort of residents in the colonies, um, and the extent to which there was a lot more assimilation there than people mutual assimilation, I should say, than people um, right. uh, recognize. Also, but, it overlooks how much say. Germans and Irish hated each other. Yeah, and that kind yeah, of stuff, exactly. Right? I yeah. mean, now what was interesting is from the beginning, I think um, you know uh, Hector Saint John de Crevacroix, who was this Frenchman who um, wrote some reminiscence of of an American farmer, mm-hmm. uh, which was his book, and he moved back and forth between the U.S. and Europe. But he observed pretty early on. Um, he made this argument that essentially the English Civil War had so scared and scarred Americans in terms – with regard to sectarianism that they had almost become sort of reflexively irenic from day one. Mm-hmm. And so I, I believe his precise term was like you know, a, a Presbyterian thinks nothing of marrying his daughter to a Lutheran. Yeah, um, yeah hard. Yeah, right. Well, my, my, <laughs> be still my Episcopalian heart. Um, but basically the um, – I think that, that the, the localization of people in 
agricultural economies, agrarian economies specifically. And whereas you had great cultural diversity, you had a, a high degree of economic homogeneity, right? Something like 80% of the population was involved in farming. Uh, meant that while material interests could carry a lot of, of um, could carry a lot of, of like clustering around people, and you know religion could cluster people otherwise, and thus you had mediated sort of institutions of the type that Tocqueville talks about to feed into the political system. Mm-hmm. I think the issue now is not so much the number of people, but the sort of isolation of people, right? It's people re- the Putnam market. People retreating. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. Society. I wouldn't go full Putnam, um, just because I'm not. You know, I, I think it may be even worse than just bowling alone. It's that people aren't even leaving the house, right? But mm-hmm. there and there. Are, but I also see real meaningful ways in which people are constituting. You know, um, virtual communities like Jay, for instance, that I have never met in person. Mm-hmm. Right? We've been doing that. I probably talk. It's like, overrated. I'll just be honest. Yeah, totally. having met both yeah, of you. I mean, you know, we're, <laughs> God. Um, but like, uh, you know. Jay and I, I probably talk to Jay on the phone more than anyone who's not in my immediate family uh-huh. and in part because we host the show for two hours almost every week and and yet we've never met in person. That's a great sort of you know artificial community, right, that, that gets created. Um, but more than that, I think the lack of mediation is what's concerning. So even if you had much smaller districts, people living in isolated lives are going to be more subject, as Tocqueville sort of argues, to a kind of overpowering um, you know, governmental resource than people who are living mediated existences. So if we could remediate things, um, I don't think the size of the districts is going to matter. Mm-hmm. I also think like the reality is that the the actual selectorate, so to, to borrow a, a political science term, of people when it comes to interfacing with the members of Congress probably hasn't moved that much in terms of size. Um, I can see that. That's an yeah, point. you know, there are a few thousand people in every few hundred to a couple thousand people in every congressional district who really care and have input and you know they're split up between the parties so yeah yeah um all right so oh, oh one other thing on this mm-hmm. though and i think this is the important dynamic on the, the congressional flip which is um we have seen so there were fewer members of congress at the outset vis-a-vis judges and now that sort of calculus has flipped Right, and so the uh, I think that the, the there are more judges than there are now. Now the the sort of position of judge, federal judge, mm-hmm. is a much more sort of august post than the member than member of Congress, right? And that's cer- certainly true, yeah. Yeah, and that was the other way around at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, to say nothing of the fact that members of Congress were essentially welfare officers for their district, and so I think that the the kind of administrative or administrationization of government and the judicialization of, gov- of government versus the sort of uh, legislative input process of doing government, which was much more common in the um, in in the early republic, has has probably done more to alienate people from their their regime mm-hmm. than size, right? So you had that's, that, that, yeah. that strikes me as entirely yeah. fair and possible. But you know what's not alienated? Not what is not alienating um, is a really good segue. And, oh, okay. And okay. so maybe on the next episode of The Remnant, I'll have one. In the meantime, <laughs> I want to tell you about ZipRecruiter, uh, who is the sponsor of this week's episode of The Remnant. Uh, you guys have heard me talk about ZipRecruiter quite a bit. Um, you guys know – you actually know how hard it is to hire good people. I do. Yeah. I don't hire people really. I mean I, have, I hire um, one research assistant and then I just basically leave a chum line out for interns you know, a couple times a year and see what comes up. But uh, from people I know, 
who actually hire people because they work for a living, hiring is really challenging. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of the employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ziprecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. ziprecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Now that I've sold my soul for filthy lucre, no, actually, I have no problem with ZipRecruiter. There are... There are advertisers who wanted to advertise on the show that I've, you know, uh, I have turned away. You vetoed. I vetoed yeah, because you know I, you know these coyotes who bring. Yeah, no, you know, it's no good. Yeah. Well, this traffic. this actually this uh, this does bring to mind. I texted Smug when we were getting ready to start to say that I was filling in uh-huh. uh, for him on the show, and he encouraged me to say something completely insane, um, vis-a-vis the children. Uh, at the border, which I will not say, but uh-huh. I felt I owed, oh, I owed he it. gave you a specific thing to say. He said, "Say something crazy, like," and I'll oh, leave I it there. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but just so he knows that that I was thinking of. So we're not going to do the punditry on the on the border stuff because we just did that on the editor's podcast, and for all I know, the news has changed in the last hour, and I don't want to ruin the shelf life of this this podcast. Instead, I do want you know switch. You know, there's a reason why this podcast is called The Remnant. We mm-hmm. don't have to repeat the history of Albert J. Nock and all that kind of stuff. But as someone who's actually in the trenches, right, sure, um, you worked for Jeb, I gather. I did, yeah. yeah. On the soft dollar side, I was at Right to Rise um, because I have found that the correlation between people who would swerve out of the way to run down Marco Rubio in the middle of the road <laughs> and people who worked for Jeb isn't perfect, but it's very high. There's there's a pretty high correlation there. I mean, I, it's endogenous in part, right? I mean, those of us who sort of looked at at a Rubio candidacy askance and said eh, that doesn't seem wise, I think we're naturally drawn to a Jeb candidacy. And I should say, look, you, I don't. You honestly are you actually going to sit there and argue that the people who moved to Jeb did so as a reaction against the horror of a Rubio candidacy, rather no, than no, they came no. to the conclusion that the Rubio candidacy was a usurper, usurper that was taking away the dynasties. Rightful no, place I, I, on the throne. I don't think so. I mean, look, like I, I can tell you why I went to work for Right to Rise and uh, why the people who were there went to work for it. It wasn't the giant, you know, pot of money. Although um, that that helped. Well, it let us <laughs> it let us do really cool things. I mean, probably the saddest thing about the way in which the the campaign ended was, you know, we had built some amazing tooling that. Um, I, that didn't get picked up by anybody else. Um, unfortunately, you know, the Trump campaign was not, I think it would be kind to say, not the most organized operation in the world. The hell you say. Yeah, I know. Um, and, and frankly, they'd recognize that their, their optimal path was through earned media, not through operations. And so a lot of stuff that we built that was really pathbreaking got mothballed. And, um, and that, you know, that obviously sticks in the craw a little bit. 
Um, I, I think what I'll say is this, you know, Jeb Bush is it's it's not going to be any great insult to say that he's not the most charismatic politician to ever stand astride the national stage. I like stage. Jeb. I, I think he's yeah. an honorable guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but beyond that, and that's the sort of thing people say is he's an honorable guy. Well, yeah, he's an honorable guy. He's also the most effective governor. Of, he was a great governor. Of, yeah. Of, he was a great of, governor. I agree of a with state that. that was a blue state that he turned red and he did something that, you know, it's possible. I don't I don't see a I don't see it happening because of matters of temperament, but in terms of matters of policy, I think it's quite possible for Trump to do it if he can, you know, massage the temperament a little bit. <laughs> Bush was a person who turned Florida into a Republican state, a conservative state, and a state with a durable conservative majority based around being inclusive and bringing people into the project of conservative reform. And there were fights he didn't pick and there were uh, fights, there were hills he was willing to die on that at times seemed quixotic but in retrospect were really critical to not just turning Florida from a blue state to a red one but also from bringing people into the fold who otherwise might have been alienated from it. And that's why I picked him was I was looking at – you know, you're looking at a Republican party that's lost two national elections to Barack Obama but basically won everything else. Mm -hmm. And so we have a message that's really good at winning locally but it seems like there's just like that last five yards we have to go to become the new majority party. And in many respects, I think the Democrats pushed us there of their own sort of witle sure. witless behavior um, and that's fine. But uh, you know, I was looking when, when – you know, in early 2015 when people were lining up, I was saying, all right, who's a vessel who has the kind of proven track record of broadening the Republican Party without broadening the conservative agenda? And you know, you could say Scott Walker and you could say Jeb Bush. And you know, when I looked at Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, I don't have any like deep personal animus against them, but they had never actually all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> I said, I said, I, I, at the time you didn't. I would say deep. Um, yeah, uh, but you know, these were people who hadn't really done very much. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I th the first piece I ever wrote for National Review was basically a criticism of the conservative media for mistaking Marco Rubio for Barack Obama, in part because they didn't understand how Barack Obama had won the presidency. Mm -hmm. And I, I have long despised the Obamaization of politics, mm -hmm. especially the Obamaization of the Republican Party, yeah. which says that biography matters. It doesn't really matter that much. That says that speech acts are constitutive of policy achievements. They are not. I am sorry. And that um, you know endorsements from think tanks or willingness to appear on panels or to endorse certain policies uh, for you know as a means of fan service to uh, constituency groups are. Uh, a substitute for real political acumen that you need to legislate. You know, I think I would have thought about a Rubio candidacy really differently if he'd gotten Gang of Eight done. Not that I necessarily would have agreed with it, but it would have shown a kind of acumen, stick to and success in moving the levers of power uh, that he didn't show. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's all fine. And again, I don't, I don't yeah. want to, you know, beat up on on Marco here too mm. much, um, or on Jeb. I like Jeb, and I, I always said during the primaries if we could. If we could just, if I could appoint Jeb president, I'd be perfectly happy to do so. But um, because I and I agree with you. I mean, I always thought that there was a strong case to be made that we elected the wrong Bush in two thousand, and sure. the problem was that Jeb had lost that first round in ninety eight against right, him, yeah. and so he wasn't there, and so W jumped ahead. But Jeb was clearly the guy with the better policy chops, and you know the way he handled that state, which I. I'm not a huge fan of Florida. Um, there are parts of Florida I really don't, like. Don't tell Charlie. But um, uh, but it's such a weird, polyglot, diverse, mm -hmm. you know, state. 
and he managed to run that place remarkably well. And, and, he, and look, he got helped out by the introduction of term limits and some other things. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But that was more than offset by you know nine, however many hurricanes and tropical storms they had. But when you say that you know uh, speeches don't matter and that policy positions don't matter and that what really matters is legislative accomplishment, well, you know, first of all. Aren't you conflict? Aren't you getting your is into your ought a little bit here? Because it mm. didn't work for Jeb. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I think that like a big part of Trump's appeal was that he could point to a track record of accomplishment. Now we all know that there are reasons to be skeptical of his claims of that. But you know, I remember I was at a dinner with a bunch of Republican donor types um, after the primaries, and I, I was sort of saying, I'm really worried about the general election for obvious reasons. I think Hillary is the most beatable Democrat ever nominated right. um, and yet it seems like they're running a shambolic campaign and you know these donors who had I would say almost universally had been Trump skeptical said, look at the New York City skyline. This is a man of accomplishment and if you want to go back onto the arguments about speeches and biography, you know, let's focus on biography for a minute, right? Republicans don't nominate young people. Right. Nobody votes for Republicans for hope and change. They vote for us basically because they believe we need the kind of efficient and ruthless execution of government for right. the sake of economic growth and defense against foreign enemies. I think I joked the other day on the editors that the modern Republican Party exists to cut taxes and kill terrorists. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. And that wasn't Rago Rubio's message. Now, I'm deeply sympathetic to the argument that an optimistic conservatism is an inclusive conservatism. Again, I, I, Jeb Bush was my horse in the primary, right? I want optimism. But when you're talking about both the Republican primary electorate and the appeal of a Republican candidate in a general election, who was the last young person that we nominated? Maybe Thomas Dewey who had been governor of New York for a term and a half or Richard Nixon who had been vice president for two terms. I mean these are youngish but they're right. deeply weathered. We like yeah. our politicians Here's with – you know, yeah, yeah, and we like our politicians with scars. And so I think that the a big part of the Rubio candidacy that also rubbed me the wrong way was that it was driven in no small part by a kind of DC Republican politico class that doesn't know that much about Republican voters. Yeah, well, that's, that, that, that's all fair. I mean, again, Rubio was not my first choice in the primaries either. Mm. Um, by the end, I was entirely in favor of the um, Los Hermanos Cubanos maneuver to stop <laughs> Trump, but that's a different issue. But so I guess my question is, all right, so looking at the data and all that, you know, and I'm, I'm not taking the bait about arguing about the allegations of Trump's lifetime of accomplishment and the New York skyline, um, but – Well, that's just a matter of, of political appearance. You know, I agree with that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fair. Yeah. You know, I, Lord knows I run into that all the time. Right. And what I, one of the things I find so fascinating is how at this point non-falsifiable these things are. Totally. You know, the idea that Donald Trump is this – one of the world's greatest managers right? and that he's one of the world's greatest negotiators when there is ah, – thank you. Uh, for listeners, he, Rich has this idea that these podcasts have to be perfectly professionally recorded every time he flubs and I'm much more in the Rob Long school which is that it's the little human touches that show that you're actually part of the conversation that – you know, an actuality, as it were, and so the, the outtakes are the intake. Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like Rob Long on the Glob podcast, he's always like, we always have a little chatter where we catch up. We talk about the topic should be. We make fun of each other before the show starts. And he's like, we should be recording this. This is gold. This is gold. And I'm I'm much more of that school. No one no one tunes into my podcast for the precision, brilliant audio engineering. Yeah, 
Um, Jay and I record ours on our cell phones at midnight on like Sunday night. Okay, that may be going too far the other way, but uh, my point is is that Luke was very kindly pointing out to me that this bottle of Scheinerbach was a twist off and I didn't need the bottle opener (laughs) um, while we were talking. Anyway, so – Non-falsifiable, you know, like this idea that he's the best negotiator right. and that he's that he built up this billion-dollar thing because of his his intuitive grasp of deals. When he's a marketer who sold his name, I know, you know, I know a few billionaires. I've met a lot of billionaires. Very few of them thought it was necessary to cut YouTube videos selling steaks, right, or to sell uh, uh, vitamin supplements as a Ponzi scheme, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's just there's a lot more sizzle than steak there. But anyway, uh, the question I have is. How much do you think – you know, there's a big debate right now about whether or not it's truly the party of Trump now, mm. right? How – is it a personality cult and all these kinds of things? I have – I don't know if they're well formulated but uh, solidly considered positions on all of these things. But I was wondering what do you see out there? Do you think that in 10 years, you know, let's say that Trump isn't reelected in 2020 or he is reelected in 2020, in 10 years – do, is the GOP a truly Trumpified party ideologically and temperamentally? Well, I mean, I think that the president has always been pretty ideologically flexible on a lot of points. He has some instinctive hostility to free trade and to free flows of people. But beyond that, like – Taking the oil is the only other thing I can think of yeah. that he's been consistent on for 30 years. Yeah, and um, – you know, he may have at least been persuaded that that was logistically impossible, at least for now. Um, He's biding his time. Biding his time. Um, but no, I, I mean, what does it mean to be Trumpified at this point? Like to be pro-immigration restrictionism? Yes, I suppose that that has consolidated in the Republican Party. I would say that was going to consolidate in the Republican Party irrespective of who won. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know that a Jeb Bush presidency – wouldn't have built a wall, but I don't think the Trump presidency is going to build a wall. He's already moved on to virtual walls and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and the reality is, is like I'm not unsympathetic to the argument that that there's these things come in, in sort of ebbs and flows, and it's time for a period of assimilation and kind of community building and well, all of I'm that. I'm not really sympathetic to that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, um, that are, are we going to have politicians that talk like uh, are, are leading Republicans going to talk more like Steve Bannon or more like Jeff Flake? They will talk more like Ben Sass than they talk like Steve Bannon. Okay, I can live with that. I think I think I think Jeff Flake is maybe a bad example because I think Senator Flake has sort of moved on some things. Yeah, I think he's right. He's, he's gone a little Jen Rubin on us. There's been a bit of that. I don't want to go that far and accuse him of bad faith, which I think Jen Rubin operates out of bad faith. That's fair. Okay, I, I didn't mean that. I, yeah, I like yeah. Jeff Flake, but he's yeah. and this is this is something a lot of people struggle with is when you see everyone turning on these positions you had for many years. In some ways, it makes you question your posi- your your commitment mm-hmm. to these positions and your willingness to maybe pushed a little bit further back. I think that's what happened to Max yeah. Boot. I think mm-hmm. it's what happened to Steve Schmidt. I think it's what happened to a, a lot of people. I like to think I've held the line, but I can kind of understand the phenomenon. And I think Jeff Flake is like, holy crap, this isn't the party I thought I was a member of. And it makes him second guess himself about some things. Yeah, and and I would also say that like I prefer Trump's view on infrastructure spending and taxation to Jeff Flake's. Like mm-hmm. I am I am not a club for growth guy. Sure. And okay. and so you know um, I'm pretty conservative, but like you have this massive sprawling federal government, and if you want to get to the point where you have curtailed it, then you got to get me a path there. Mm-hmm. And just saying get rid of it is not itself a kind of political argument. So. 
I will say I don't think Club for Growth is as Club for Growthy as it used to be. Either. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I, and that may actually be a more interesting question, right? Is like to what extent does the kind of habitus of Trump infect the conservative organization ecosystem? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that's going to be fleeting. You know, uh, it's we've seen people try to impersonate him. It doesn't work particularly well. Right. And a lot of as as much as I have like pretty robust criticisms of like opportun- the opportunity conservatism of Paul Ryan, like, you know, it was at least pitched politically in a way that in the context of an Obama presidency, anybody running for office pretty much anywhere in the US outside of some parts of California and the Northeast could just pick up and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, Trumpism if okay, we're going to have a downturn in the economy. If it happens shortly after the midterms, and then we're back up into an upswing going into twenty twenty, and we don't start any foreign wars, you know, Trump will be the first American president not to basically initiate military conflict in a new country in four decades, mm-hmm. three decades. I mean, it's been a long we time. We think, we think, yeah. But he could literally run as the peace and prosperity president, and mm-hmm. we may not, you know, love the kind of Wilsonian overtones of he kept us out of war. But the fact of the matter is, is Nixon got us out of Vietnam. Nixon got us out yeah. of Vietnam. Yeah, and and I think that like, I think that that kind of Trumpism, if that's the new GOP, like we go back to a position where you know we're not going to engage in overly ambitious wars abroad, but we're going to have a big ass army to hurt anybody who tries to you know cross us. That may be a winning proposition. I may be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, well, that's 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 entirely fair. My own take on this is. Now, now that isolationist note, I should say, may just be the fact that I'm sitting in Michael Brennan Doherty's it might be. chair. Just oh, but, uh, let, let's be fair. Michael seems to be doing a lot of growing lately. <laughs> um, and I don't just mean the mutton chops. But um, you know, I don't think it's a co- – uh, Ramesh has a piece coming out. I looked at an early draft of it where he makes a pretty solid case that the party hasn't become Trumpified. But there is a cult of personality thing going on. And part of the problem is, as a friend of mine recently put it, who deals with a lot of people on the Hill, part of the problem is that the normal way politics works is that politicians, that both the carrot and the stick have some power, right? Mm-hmm. So you praise someone when they do good and that incentivizes them to do it again and you criticize them when they do bad and that incentivizes them not to do it again. With Trump, the stick doesn't work. Yeah, the stick actually like – Works like a carrot. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's it's more effective than a carrot. You tell him not to do something, he has to do it. Right. It's like, you know, you tell him if you push that button, Cleveland's going to be in you know smoldering ruins. Mm-hmm. You can't push this button. What do you mean I can't push this button? You know, right. and sorry, Cleveland. And um, I, I'm not sorry, Cleveland. <laughs> well, you know, hey, I, I, had, I had fun there during the RNC. <laughs> um, I I liked Cleveland. I didn't have that much fun during the RNC. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, and so the part of the problem is is that. There has never been, I don't think, and you're the historian here, the kind of disconnect that we have now where what people, including a lot of people who work for Donald Trump in the White House, say about him in public, you know, these are going to be the greatest wheat harvests we've ever seen west of the Urals. Comrade Trump is so powerful he can build a stone that only he can lift and all this kind of stuff. And then behind his back, they all say they have contempt for him. They all say they can manipulate him with praise. Um, Same thing with a lot of people on the Hill. And and so my concern is not that the party is being Trumpified, but that the the brand of the party is being Trumpified for people who otherwise might be interested in voting for Republicans. So for young people, they really do think, and certainly the left thinks that that 
there is no inconsistency between traditional republicanism right. and Donald Trump. That brand that that is not a problem as Ben Shapiro's I thought wrote pretty persuasively in the standard. That's not a big problem for old voters who are mostly Republicans, right? Because they don't care. They want to win. They've been through culture wars. Right. They know who their friends are. But people, young people, really feel like they need to defend their positions because lots of their friends are liberal. And the way polit- political opinions are formed is you don't want to be embarrassed of your guy or your or a party. So that's my concern. It's not the I, I, in some ways. And I you know I wrote a column recently that. A lot of people hated um, that Conrad Black got a bee in his bonnet about and we're going back and forth again, um, saying that this is a little bit like the McCarthy period where it has less to do with any of the underlying policy disputes. You could, you could have been a raging anti-communist, but if you didn't support Joe McCarthy, mm. that's all people needed to know, right? It's all about a personality. Trump is distorting everything about a personality and if you're pro-Trump, that is a branding issue and if you're anti-Trump, that is a branding mm-hmm. issue that I think is going to be with us for a very long time. Tell me why I'm wrong or right. Well, I, here's what I'll tell you. I mean like you've you've seen Patton, you know, the speech about Americans love a winner, mm-hmm. right? A cult personality in this country survives only so long as the economy is booming and we're not losing a war. And so I, I think that you know, the cult attenuates and it's easy to think that it's actually expanding because it's becoming more intense in certain corners of the conservative media, cough, cough, Fox, um, as the administration comes under not pressure of defeat but the pressure of governing, which is to say the day-to-day operations of using the apparatus of state to achieve policy ends. I mean I will tell you I've, I've heard from friends who work as career civil servants in the administration that it's, it's unambiguous in their view that the administration is getting better at using the system mm-hmm. to achieve its ends. They are getting smarter about – the limits of the system, but also the sort of powers that it that it imbues in people. And so, you know, what that means in another way of putting it is that like they're engaging in policy and the politics policy makes. And ultimately, I think that lasts a lot longer than the ephemera of personality. And I would say the best example we have of this is Obamacare. Right? I mean, Barack Obama left office broadly popular, well-liked by most Americans. He never wasn't all that well-liked by most Americans. But most Americans essentially said, yeah, guy sucks at foreign policy. His big domestic achievements, uh, which were sort of Dodd-Frank and Obamacare, have either directly negatively impacted my pocketbook or just been debacles. So nice to know you. Glad we, glad we elected you. Goodbye. We're going we're gonna to elect the sort of antithesis of you in Donald Trump, although both of them you could say are, are deeply steeped in different kinds of celebrity culture, right? You know, Obama is sort of mm-hmm. the movie star president and, and Trump is the daytime Emmy president. But I, I – do cults of personality go away? No. I mean they, they stay in parties, right? I think it does hamstring Democrats that they really can't criticize Obama yet. Um, which was something that Republicans didn't face in, say, 2010, 2011, like George W. Bush won because he absented himself to such an extent and understood that he was going to be pilloried internal to his own party uh, for the sake of its regeneration, but also just because of the condition of the party's reputation when we left power. Uh, it was There was much more open self-criticism in the Republican yeah. Party than there is in the Democratic Party today. But I don't – if, if let's say, let's cast a, a, a pessimistic um, you know, guess and say the Trump presidency is a total disaster for the Republican Party and 2020 looks like uh, 2016 but in reverse. I don't think Republicans are going to f- are going to die on the ramparts of Donald Trump's reputation. Yeah. OK. So I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Here's where I think ultimately your, your 
You're quite wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, well, I should say we may still have to go through the motions of you know kowtowing to it. Like, yeah, look, yeah. I mean, you know, Democrats still pretend that John Kennedy was you know a successful president. Well, that but, sort of gets me to my point, yeah. right? Um, you know, going back to your comments about Jeb, Jeb, you know, Jeb has got as a as a matter of policy accomplishment and political chops, he is one of the best records of anybody who's run for president in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, he lost. Hillary Clinton would have lost, even though she has not as impressive a record, but a be- more impressive record of getting stuff done than Bernie Sanders did. But she rigged the primaries. <laughs> um, but you go back. I do, and- I do think even if she hadn't rigged them, she would have won. And actually, probably would have improved her chances for winning the general election. But may, that may, that but, but it was her weakness to basically say to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, "You're going to rig these for me." Right, right. And I, I agree with all that. It's sort of like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But it seems to me that you you have a bias towards, which I think is laudable and encouraging, and speaks well of you as a person <laughs> towards policy accomplishments. Right. Uh, JFK was not a a hugely successful uh, president in terms of policy accomplishments, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he basically spent most of his time trying to f- figure out, you know, telling people, you know, have this young lady cleaned and washed and brought to my tent. Right. Uh, Herbert Hoover, the memory of him is completely different than the presidency that he sure. had. FDR um, got a lot of things done or a lot of things were done on his watch. A lot of them were really, really bad. Yeah, and he also surrendered policymaking to the Congress for the Second New Deal and that. So a lot of the things he gets credit for were basically – I yeah. I agree. And a lot of the things um, that we most associate with the New Deal prolonged the Great Depression and a lot of the things that, sure. we, that he did that were good didn't. But anyway, um, so you know, the counterexample would be probably Ronald Reagan, right, who's – Legacy has only improved because of his policy accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But for the most part – And Ike. I think Ike's – And Ike. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. That's fair. But for the most part, so parties are formed – In other words, the two Republican presidents to serve two full terms between FDR and George W. Bush. Yeah. Right. That's right. Um, and, and, and Nixon's policy achievement chops weren't so shabby either. Nixon's policy achievements – Chops were fantastic. They were tremendous. Um, well, I mean, like, I mean, some some of them we might not like. Right, a lot of them we don't yeah, like, yeah. right? I mean, he was the last liberal Republican. Right. But um, but Nixon supports my point, which is that the the personal brand is more lasting and more affecting of po- electoral politics than um, the policy accomplishments, for the most part. You don't hear a lot of liberals going around saying, except to sort of beat up contemporary Republicans. You know, it was, it was Richard Nixon who started the EPA. It was Richard Nixon who started affirmative action. He gets no credit for that stuff. Donald Trump is doing a lot of things I like. I have a very hard time believing that that is the stuff that in the that the, the that is going to stick to the media, to the stick to attitudes of young people for a very long time. And uh, it seems to me that the the it's you know it, it's sort of like this this big argument I get into with a lot of people. Some of my colleagues, even here at National Review, say you know oh you're just objecting to his style. Well, part of his style is uh, being a Head past the sphincter, suck up to foreign dictators, right? That is a that has an effect on the brand. That yeah. has an effect on the perception of the party, and I think that kind or demonizing a American judge of Mexican heritage, right? I mean, there are a lot of those things have they affect the brand in lasting ways that improving GDP growth. I don't think long term is going to uh, have the same impact. 
Oh, so I guess I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, I those those particular things, the Curiel case, um, especially precisely because of their sort of, I mean, how to say it, like their their willfulness, their disposability, um, the extent to which they're kind of reflections of his internal frustration rather than a thought process. Yeah, I think those are damaging. I don't I don't want to pretend that like style doesn't matter. But I do I do want to suggest that I mean so first of all, like I'm deeply I don't want to say deeply cynical, but like deeply suspicious of a lot of the mythopoeia that we build up around presidents. And I I mean even yeah, even given his sort of serious personal foibles, like Donald Trump is like what? Morally at worst, the fourth worst person to hold the office since World War II. I mean, like, you know, you've got to say that like Nixon, Clinton, and JFK are are, you know, JFK is is basically indefensible given what we know about his sort of um, both irresponsibility. You and, mean behavior in office? In office? Oh yeah, no, yeah. That, that, yeah. that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. And so, uh, you know, I and maybe things will emerge that we don't know about now that will make me revisit yeah. that. But um, but like, yeah, is he a moral exemplar? No. Do I absolutely? agree with you that those kinds of, of um, fits of peak hurt the brand in a meaningful way and are more aggravating precisely because of how unnecessary they are? Yes, but you know, the Republican Party has been on a long-term quest to figure out what it is since the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And we've tried Gingrichism, didn't go very well. We've tried Ryanism, worked extremely well at every level except for um, you know, the presidency. We've tried compassionate conservatism, uh, worked extremely well until 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think – yeah. And I think that basically like in many respects, Trump is a weird hybrid of Romneyism, compassionate conservatism and celebrity. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm not thrilled about the celebrity angle and I still have deep reservations about the uh, – you know, um, you know the temperament of the of of the president, but as bad as those moments like the Judge Curiel attack are, and as I think they're mostly bad precisely for their unnecessariness, and not so much for their acuity. Um, yes, we run the risk of losing a lot of low tax, otherwise sort of moderate or conservative middle class people, but I think also. We as Republicans, and I've written this in National Review, we've got to get used to the idea that we're a coalition party now, not an ideological party. Mm-hmm. We're, we're the new majority party and Democrats are the new ideological party and that's a flip from uh, 80 years mm-hmm. of it being the other way around mm-hmm. and that means that literally no one alive in this game has ever had the shoe on the other foot, which is exciting but it's also sort of terrifying and we're going to have to get – used to new modes of being. I mean Nancy Pelosi said in front of a press conference, they have orthodoxy. We don't have orthodoxy, which just like can you imagine a speaker of the House or a minority leader of the Republican Party explicitly decrying an ideological agenda? It's it's mind-blowing. Right, right. On the flip side, like that's the world she's from. She's from keeping a coalition together. We're from being in a minority insurgency that has to hang together because we'll definitely hang separately. Shoes are on the other feet now and it's going to be – in some ways, Trump's lack of consistency in his persona may not be the worst midwife to get us there. We could go on about this, but yeah. I, I, in part because I think you know I wrote uh, my last book, not not the book that everyone should buy right now, uh, Suicide West. But my last book, I wrote basically entirely about this idea that it is one of the great myths of liberalism that they don't have an orthodoxy, and yeah. um, it's a byproduct of 
of early 20th century pragmatism. They've convinced themselves that they don't have dogma. Dogma is just what people who are wrong have. Right. Um, but we won't get into all of that and never mind the lasting effects of Donald Trump, which I know some of my listeners don't want to hear any more about. So final exit question. Sure. So I'm not going to do the big buildup because I got a lot of complaints about doing too much sort of throat-clearing buildup on all this. But one of the things – I used to have this exit question about what would surprise people the most about Washington that you've learned. But you're not in Washington. Yeah. Well, I, so, I used to be for a while. Yeah. So, and now my question is these days is when I do this yeah. is everyone – every smart person – I know and, and it used to be much more common but every smart person I know has one or two really weird ideas mm. that they don't necessarily <laughs> want to put out there but that they can't let go of to some extent or another. Is there a weird idea like just some oddball – you know, Tim Carney had a long – Digression about natural family planning for the cat for Catholics, mm. which I'm not going to get detailed because this is a family podcast. Even though oddly it's a family yeah. point. So, is there some? It can be a historical grievance, you know. It can be whatever you want. Um, it could be something that people don't understand about your profession, or or that you actually think the prequels were the best Star Wars. Basically, basically, what's my heresy? Yeah, what's your heresy? That's a good okay. way of putting it. Well, you know, we've gone through enough Shinerbach in a short enough period of time. Yeah. Not, yeah. This is it's quite an impressive scene yeah, here. I, might, I think we're I, doing I might, well. might take a picture for the show notes. Yeah. But anyway, go on. So I, I touched on this very briefly in the editor's podcast today, but I think the the biggest thing is like I basically don't think that the universities exist for the purpose of of the advancement of human knowledge. They may have at one time briefly during the period of the sort of like um, And you say this as a former professor at Yale. Yeah, well, lecturer. They didn't lecture. give you know, let's I don't want to get title inflation here. But um, but no, I, I would say that when I – Provost. Look, you were yeah, provost. That was it. Yeah. You know, I was president for <laughs> 20 years. Um, but no, the uh, – I, I think that the um, the universities today resemble to me the sort of monasteries right before their suppression by Henry VIII. They dispense utter, utterly meaningless indulgences that nonetheless have sort of economic mm – -hmm material benefits and soteriological benefits to their inheritors, sometimes soteriology outweighing um, the material uh, benefits. They're little sort of concentrations of wealth. They're essentially tax-exempt. Elaborate and arcane discussions of things take place there, including some very weird sexual ideas mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. are at odds with the general population. And whereas the monasteries essentially were able to stay in business so long as people thought their, their, their immortal souls depended upon the blessing from them. We have you know, people, oversized people giving each other traumatic brain injuries as a means to, to preserve the universities of the United States. But the minute folks stop cheering for football, those That's endowments are going to get fleeced. So I have enormous amount of sympathy for this for a couple of reasons. One is having spent the last few years deep in the weeds of Joseph Schumpeter's borrowing from Friedrich Nietzsche mm -hmm. about the priests versus the nightly classes. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of that going on. And also we had a podcast uh, a couple months ago with Brian Kaplan where he was making the argument against colleges mm. essentially. And so, so the interesting thing is I'm not one of these conservatives who says don't go to college. Yeah. Um, I, so long as the indulgences are for sale, buy them. You know? No, that's yeah, right. But, yeah. That's sort of – that's part yeah. of his point is that you should understand that what you're buying – is a, a Dougal signet ring or something, right? right? You know? and, and you're buying time. That's the other thing that you're buying, right? Is like most of the people who say don't go to college are because it's a bad economic investment. Okay, maybe it was for me a bad economic investment to, well, 
I was a scholarship kid, so my undergraduate sort of covered by that. But like maybe it was a bad economic investment for me to go to graduate school. But like I live a deeper, richer life. And because you did. Because I did. And that was a trade-off that cannot be fully materialized. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, like it was back – the backdrop of this was the global financial crisis. So it was not right. obviously economically irrational. But I thank God every day that I didn't go become a banker out of college, which was the other option or work yeah. at a hedge fund as a quant, right? And so um, yeah, I, I think that you can still do things in the universities, but I do not view them as healthy institutions and they, I don't view them as healthy institutions within the broader culture even though the argument for them has never been purely an economic one. I agree with that entirely. And with that, I want to say, Luke, thank you very much for being on here. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I, I, I know we've gone long and I'm supposed to talk about NR Plus, so I'm going to do that very quick. Oh, well, yeah. um, Luke allegedly uh, texts uh, with comfortably smug and I'm now going to go to this text thing and it's just going to be text to himself. It's going to be really creepy. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I – I, 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 say I want is strong, but this is what I'm supposed to say. I want to take a quick moment to talk about NR+. Um, we – who's we? We like to say NR+, is a lot more than a digital subscription and it truly is. Um, and I don't mean to denigrate. This actually is a really good idea and I'm, I'm – except for one caveat, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, I'm just tired of being told what to do. So uh, when you become an NR+, member – you, of course, get unlimited access to the National Review Digital Magazine. That means you don't get the paywall, which is a good thing, when you want to read National Review Magazine on your computer or your mobile device. You get total access to the latest issue and to all the issues in our 10-year archive. That's actually a really big deal. But NR Plus is more than a digital subscription. It really is a membership. When you join NR Plus, you get access to our members-only Facebook group. That's a place where you and other NR Plus members can share your thoughts with us, with all of us editors and writers over at National Review. It's a great perk for everyone involved. You get to speak your mind to all of us at National Review, and we get important feedback from our most dedicated readers. It's a great deal. We've also started this big conference call feature thing where NR writers, editors, and special guests get to talk to members of NR Plus. Only members of NR Plus get the call and info. And these are great conversations that you won't want to miss. There's also commenting. And this is, this is to me is the best one because I've been fighting for something like this for almost 20 years. Only NR Plus members can comment on the site, which makes for a much more elevated commenting experience. Now, there's one thing which I learned from the last episode of the editors that I'm a little torn about. Um, but I think it is a great incentive to join NR Plus since – the Remnant is a NR podcast. You only can find the last 10 episodes of The Remnant on most platforms like iTunes and whatnot. But if you are a member of NR Plus, you have access to the full archive, which means you get to go back and listen to any of our shows, including like the Meaning of Life ones, the Advice for Kids ones, all of them except for episode 11 because you know that was just so bathed in blood and gore and it's just – you can't listen to that. So um, get this. When you join NR Plus and are logged into this site, to the site, you will see up to 90% fewer ads on the site. In particular, you will see zero ads within articles. So when you're reading what you came to the site to read, your distractions will be minimized. There's a lot more to the NR Plus program, but those are some key takeaways. 
So why not join today? It's really terrific, and we have some great first-year pricing in place. So you'll want to act now. So here's what you do. Go to nationalreview.com slash plus. That's nationalreview.com slash plus. And there you can read about everything this membership has to offer, and then just click the join now to see all your options. And remember, if there's some way, use it as a middle name, some sort of comment section. If you could put in the word dingo so we can send a message to Lowry about just how much power this podcast has over this institution, I would be great. I would be deeply grateful. So that's nrplus, nationalreview.com slash plus, and then sneak in a dingo where you can. Thanks very much. All right. So we're all done here. Thanks again. Hey, to, no, thanks for having me. Thanks to Luke. Um, Jack will be back on the next episode of The Remnant, um, and we'll have all the normal stuff up on the uh, show notes at jonahgoldberg.com. And uh, if you can review us at iTunes, if you can review us at Stitcher, all those weird places, that would be great. Um, And if you could subscribe, that would be great. And uh, see you next time. Ha, Jack, you weren't here to correct me. (laughs) 